You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader discusses Veda and discovering the structural relationship between consciousness, natural law, physiology, and the universe. Veda is a term that means knowledge. It's a Sanskrit term that means knowledge. And it comes from a tradition in India of the Vedic teachers, from teacher to student, this knowledge has been handed down. So this is the picture of the tradition of masters and I have received all knowledge that I know about Veda from one of these great representatives of this tradition who has lived in this world, in this, our generation, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who has been given this knowledge by his master in the Himalayas, uh, who was also the Shankaracharya of Jyotirmat in Jyotirmat in Himalayas. Uh, what is very specifically important and interesting about Maharshi's approach to this understanding of what Veda is, is that he described Veda as the expression of the laws of nature. Veda is, as we said, a term which means knowledge. This term has been used and interpreted in so many different ways and the knowledge available in the textbooks of the Vedic literature has been translated and commented upon and there are many universities that give PhDs on this ancient knowledge. So as knowledge goes, it does give all kinds of instructions about life. One of the aspects that you may be familiar with is yoga, for example, which is a unifying value of natural law. And another is Ayurveda, which is the science of health. And there are like this very large number of treaties and teachings within the Veda. So you can learn about herbs and plants and living and diet. You can learn about behavior, about relations about government, about society. And all of these aspects have attracted throughout the ages the commentators uh, to study them because it's one of the most ancient, if not the most ancient, literature that is available to humankind. And it comes from such an old age and it's such a huge knowledge which includes knowledge about planets and stars and their influence in life which is called also Jyotish. Like this, there are many, many aspects of Veda, and the commentators often have found that there are aspects that are not understandable at all. The main Vedas are four of them. They are Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, and Atharva Veda. And if you actually take these books and read them, you won't get any kind of knowledge that we would call knowledge of instruction or teaching or what kind of life to live or what to do. You just get stories about things that are happening that are sometimes, one must say, unusual and for our modern times, certainly today, they sound bizarre. Some of the aspects of the Veda, for example, the epics that are in the Veda, like Mahabharata and Ramayana, are great epics and they have within them beautiful teachings of honor and courage and great wisdom of relations and government, etc. But they also have aspects in them that are incomprehensible in modern day times, such as monkeys flying and you know, demons with ten heads and all kinds of things that sound like bizarre things, unusual things. 
with time the interpretation of these books and this knowledge has gone to say maybe this is symbolic of something, symbolic of the good values, symbolic of the bad values and how they interact and how can you explain ten heads of this demon. Maybe it's because they have these different personalities or they are able to survive different kinds of threats and they kind of come out and come back again, etc. But if we look at the modern Indian culture and you see the young Indian people who move, let's say, to the US as many of who are with us here today, it's a challenging thing to convince the young people what this is about. And the reason is not that this knowledge itself is only a symbolic or a trying to explain something in a symbolic way, but it is because actually there is a different, completely different way of looking of what this knowledge is, and in fact what knowledge is in terms of Veda altogether. And this different way has been brought to light by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who has described this great collection of literature and knowledge, not in terms of its content, not in terms of its meaning. Maharishi emphasized that we don't even need to translate the Veda, we don't need to study Sanskrit to truly understand the Veda. That was a big relief for me because he wanted me to do research on Veda and the first thing I thought I should do is study Sanskrit or maybe try to find some kind of translation. And Mashi was very usually unhappy with most of the translations that are given because in Sanskrit every word has so many shades and you can look at it from so many ways that the translation leaves you with an interpretation of the text that is quite intellectual. But Mashi said something very unusual, and that is that Veda is not to be understood from the perspective of the meaning, but from the perspective of its sound value, and the perspective of its structure, how it is structured. This is also unusual. How can, what does it mean you understand something from its sound value? And so when I asked Maharshi what this meant, he said, it's actually, Veda is not something that has been composed intellectually and that the rishis, the rishi is a seer, those who have actually cognized the Veda, did not sit there and start to think, what should I write, and then correct it, and then adjust it, and look for grammar, and all of that. He said it's a direct cognition. It's a direct experience. And it's an experience that I like to compare to experience of great musicians, for example, who, in the inner self, they hear the music, and then they write it out. So the music as if comes from inside. Some of the greatest musicians, even in classical music, you know, Mozart and all these great Beethoven and all of that, they, would, they usually would say the music comes from inside and then they rushed home and started writing it. Of course, sometimes they made corrections and sometimes there are, of course, composers who just write it like an intellectual composition, but the great musicians they felt something inside and then they <clears throat> express it outside. And what did they feel? Where this feeling came from? It came from an inner deep sense of harmony and connectedness to something very profound within our own consciousness. We'll see how this can be possible as we go along this discussion and understand where this comes from. But the reality is that it's a direct experience. And what Marshi had said is that this is a direct experience of the laws of nature. This is what Veda is about. Veda is actually more of a direct description of natural law, which means the laws of life, the laws of the universe, the laws of 
interactions between individuals, the laws of biology and chemistry, the basic laws of life that create the universe and make it as it is. That's what science is trying to understand today. Science in its analysis of physics or chemistry, biology, is trying to understand what are the laws that define the behavior of a cell in the body or of an organ or how an atom moves and interacts with other atoms and there is this magnetic force and electric force and there are formulae and there are constants and you write them down and you know these relationships. These dynamics of relationships is what constructs the entire universe. And these dynamics of relationships are available all within our own human physiology. Our own human physiology, and this again was Maharshi's beautiful insight, is a reflection of the entire cosmos. And that's why we are able to think, to understand the cosmos. That's why when we have logical thinking, in mathematics and reasoning, we can understand how the planets work, how light works, the speed of light and the relationship and relativity and quantum mechanics. All of these very abstract aspects of knowledge which are not necessarily the result of experimentation but primarily the result of intellectual thinking and planning and analyzing and, and structuring in terms of what happens and how things should be logically. This is what is the result of almost like an artist having an intuition and an intellectual analysis of something and deciding this makes sense and this is how it should be. So the universe we are able to understand it, we are able to talk about galaxies, about time, about space, about particles that are smaller than the smallest, about dimension, they are bigger than the biggest. All of these are, again, coming from what we call logic and mathematics and intelligence and thinking. And these very abstract aspects are available to us as human beings because actually our physiology is constructed in such a way that it contains within it all of these laws of nature. So, Maharshi said, Veda has all the laws of nature. Human body has all the laws of nature. And it must be, therefore, that Veda must look like a human body. That physiology, which is material, and which we know objectively through analysis of anatomy and structure and function of the body, is a reference and that reference, which is able to understand the universe, which is able to construct the laws of nature, which is able to write formally and mathematics and explain the entire life in which we are, that structure, which is our human body, therefore is containing all of these laws in such a way that it expresses and experiences when it is properly balanced and, and, and free from stress and problems, it is able to think the universe and understand it. So it contains all of these laws. At the same time, Veda contains all the laws of nature because Veda is total knowledge. So the proposition was there are two things that contain all the laws of nature. One is physical structure, our human body, and one is literature, that is the Veda. And basically the challenge was how to show the relationship between these two, if we can find the relationship between these two. And the relationship should not be on the level of intellectual analysis or interpretation, meaning it shouldn't be open to philosophy and, and interpretation. It should be really very scientific. And to have something scientific about the body, you have to look at its structure, how the structure of the physiology is, and how it functions, what it does. So how the brain works, how these different parts of the human nervous system react with each other, and how they create the results of what we experience and what we do. So the structure and function of the body. But how do you look at the structure and function of a literature? And Mashi was very simple about it. He said, just look at the structure. 
what is the structure of a book? If you take the book of yoga, for example, it's a book that is available and it is Patanjali, who is the one who has cognized this book, this knowledge, and you look at how it is constructed. You find it has, very simply, four chapters. This is its structure. It has four chapters. And each chapter in yoga has a number of subdivisions. These are called aphorisms or sutras. And so the first chapter has 51, the second one 54, like that. They have a number of sutras. This is what we call the structure of a book. This is a very novel idea in terms of looking at a literature which is supposed to be knowledge. And usually knowledge is something you talk about, you understand, you discuss. It's a philosophy of life, it's an understanding of behavior. And here we're not looking at this at all. We're looking at it completely on the level of its physical structure, of its sounds. And the structure of the sound is defined by silence and sound, silence and sound. It's like when you have a sentence, at the end you have full stop, it's a silence. Between words you have a silence. So you say a word and silence, another word of silence. So how many words are there? How they are built? Actually the pattern in which these literature is built. So there was a completely novel look at any knowledge, and in this particular case, of course, at Veda. And therefore, my task was to take the Veda and look at it from its structural perspective and from its functional perspective. For example, the book of yoga, as we said, has four chapters. That's its structure. What is its function? Yoga means unifying, to put together, to unify. So the unifying value of yoga is its function of yoga. And the structure of this unifying value is simply four chapters and four, which means four divisions, and each division having a number of subdivisions, as we discussed. This is the basis of the research on Veda and human physiology. And then I went on with years of work, because Veda is so huge. We took just one aspect now, the aspect of yoga, yoga. Uh, but there are 40 branches of the Vedic literature that Marshi has clearly defined and he has organized them in a very proper way. And this was the first book that was producing this research which showed that all the 40 aspects of the Veda and Vedic literature are available in our human physiology. I took this to a specific aspect of the Veda, one of them is the Ramayana. In this case, the Ramayana is a story of a king, and uh, you maybe are familiar with it, of uh, Ram, how he went to the forest with Sita, and then he had to fight, and then Sita was abducted, and then he had to bring her back, and then went back to the kingdom. It's a long story which has many wonderful aspects of knowledge and courage and inspiration and government and decision-making and administration and relationships between people and jealousy and fear and all kinds of human emotions, all kinds of aspects of life and descriptions of good and bad and relationship, how to uphold all of these values in life is really wonderfully there. But again, I did not look at the Ramayana from these perspectives. I looked at it from the perspective of the characters in the Ramayana, which means Ram and Bharat and uh, Hanuman and all of these different wonderful characters in the Ramayana and the Rishis and Vashishta and Vishwamitra and all of these, and see what they do, what's their function in the story of the Ramayana. And compare this to our human nervous system, our body. What function of our body does what? And how does it interact with other parts? And again here, it was completely possible, and that's what made this second book, Ramayana Human Physiology, to find that all of these characters of the Ramayana and all the happenings within the Ramayana 
are actually happening within our own human physiology. So that's the story of Veda as seen from this angle that we are discussing this evening. Now, this is not something uh, foreign uh, necessarily at all. You know, Marshi has brought it to light in terms of complete knowledge, but this is something that has already been described in the literature of Veda, if you translate it and look at it. You see, for example, here that Veda talks about human beings as coming out of bliss, living in bliss, and so therefore describes a human being as being on the highest level of any possible achievement, that our life should be lived in fulfillment because we are born out of fulfillment and we come into fulfillment. That means the totality of all the laws of nature is available within us. And that's what the Veda says, all is totality. And you are totality, everyone is totality. As is the atom, so is the universe. As is our body, so is the cosmic body. I am totality, aham brahmasmi. But this is also available in different traditions. For example, in the Tao, it says that the nature of heaven belongs to man. In the Bible, God created man in his own image. In the New Testament, the kingdom of heaven is within you. In the Quran and on earth are signs of God for those of assured faith. They are within you. Do you not perceive? So even in this very nice saying by a great caliph of Islam, and consider yourself to be a small atom, yet the whole universe is folded within you. So all the traditions of knowledge, if you look deep into them, they say that the human being has such huge potential. Now, of course, this is subjective knowledge, which means this is knowledge that comes from intuition, from inner experience, but now in this research that was looking at Veda and the human physiology, this reality is becoming understandable from a scientific perspective. So from Ramayana, Ram is totality, Ram, Brahm, creation was based as it was before. So this is really what we are looking at and what we are comparing is some subjective aspect of knowledge like the Veda to an objective aspect of knowledge which is a human physiology. And so this is what we are going to highlight in this few more minutes that we will discuss these aspects of the reality. This is the human brain. It's, it's like an instrument that we have and that instrument, the purer it is, the more it is able to understand itself and understand the universe. That is also an instrument, like other instruments that understand the different aspects of measurements. The more accurate the instrument is, the more it's capable of taking us to more complete knowledge and to give us more accurate understanding of the environment if we're looking at something from an objective perspective. In the same way, our human brain is an instrument that allows us to understand more or less our reality and the universe depending on how perfect, how pure it is. This is a slide that shows, we call it the unified field chart of physiology. It takes us now to analyzing really how can we intellectually conceive that a human being could understand the universe and how can intellectually we can conceive that the Veda has had this knowledge, where did it come from, how these people, the Rishis, found it, where did they discover it. And when we look at this chart, we find an analysis of what a society, for example, is made of. It's made out of individuals. What an individual is made out of is a set of organ systems, and the organ systems are made of organs, the organs out of tissues, the tissues out of cells, the cells out of molecules based on a DNA, and then these molecules themselves are made by atoms, and the atoms are made by particles, and the particles are by more elementary particles, and if you go deeper and deeper in nature, you actually find that everything comes from fields. This is physics, and the physics tell us there are four main fields, 
and this is what used to be thought about, about 50, 60 years ago, but then gradually the scientists found that these fields, which can be different, are actually the same. For example, electricity and magnetism, you would think they are two different phenomena because magnetism attracts electricity, it just produces electrical current and can light things up and magnetism attracts iron and whatever attracts each other. But ultimately it turns out it's one and the same thing. It's just the way motion of current creates magnetic fields. And so there is now not electrical field and magnetic field, it's only one field, it's called the electromagnetic field. And therefore as you go deeper into the reality of the physical universe, Scientists started to discover that there are basic, more basic fields that are the more unifying value at the basis of all that we perceive. So from the forces of nature that were separate and so many of them, science discovered that it's all actually more basic fields. And then you have grand unified field, they gave the Nobel Prize to those who discovered this grand unification, Weinberg and Salam and then greater unification, and today we talk about the unified field of all the laws of nature. What this tells us is that the entire universe, not only human being and society, but anything, a table, a tree, a star, a planet, are made out of molecules, they are made out of atoms, and the atoms like this are expressions of fields, and ultimately it's all one field, it's called the unified field of all the laws of nature. And that unified field, when it vibrates, that's the M-theory and the string theory. We don't need to become quantum physicists in this lecture, but it's just to have an idea that actually is the vibrations within this field that create the impression of particles and all of that arising into the whole manifest universe. So actually everything is the unified field meaning our body, our brain, our universe, the tree, the planets, are all the unified field, but expressing all these vibrations and collecting them in different ways. Now, all the laws that create the entire universe come from the unified field. So that's why we like to call it, it's the home of all the laws of nature. There is a technique, transcendental meditation, it allows the mind to settle down and as it settles down, close the eyes, sit comfortably in a chair. You can learn it in four or five days, it's very easy, then you practice it on your own. Is allowing the mind to settle down inside. So here we are talking now about consciousness, awareness. And the consciousness settles down, settles down, settles down. And this is the experience of millions of people around the world. Until it reaches a state where it's completely pure consciousness which means there is no vibration, there is no excitation, just deep inner self. And that experience of what we call transcending is something that is not just on a mind level, that is good for the mind, that is good for consciousness as a very interesting experience, but it shows that the entire physiology gets transformed. The entire physiology gets transformed into, into something good. So there are 700 scientific research studies that show blood pressure decreases, health improves, all aspects of life are improved just by contacting that field from the level of consciousness. What this tells us is that the unified field, when we are in touch with it, organizes the entire structure of our body and even our society because when a small percentage of people practice transcendental meditation, we have found decrease in crimes, decrease in conflicts in society. So contacting the unified field on the level of consciousness, here through transcending, creates powerful effects on the physiology and transforms the physiology. So I'd like to share this with you because it's very important on a personal level to use a technique like this for stress uh, management, but also mostly for creativity and improving all aspects of life. But for the purpose of our discussion this evening, I just want to highlight the fact that 
the human mind transcending, reaching that deep state of consciousness, that unified field, what it does, it allows us to contact the home of all the laws of nature. And the idea is that a musician, we said, who goes inside and feels the music coming from within, is somebody who has kind of very deep inside and contacting some deep level of themselves and they are alert on that level and they feel the harmony, they feel the music. It's just an example. So they are cognizing it, they are not just inventing it or intellectually composing it like a mathematical composition, but they are experiencing it and therefore this is how they bring it out and make it a nice melody or a symphony that we enjoy or that's enjoyed throughout the ages for many cultures because it brings some very profound knowledge of inner reality and that is why it's soothing music. Now Veda is the same. Veda is not an intellectual composition. Veda is a direct cognition, but a direct cognition which is much deeper than the music. It's a direct cognition of how the laws of nature in this unified field actually manifest themselves. So Veda is really the laws of nature directly seen, directly experienced. That's why they call those who have cognized the Veda, they call them Rishi. Because Rishi means a seer. And the seer, what does the seer do? The seer sees. It doesn't compose, he sees. He is a seer, he sees it. So these seers, what they have seen is the vibrations of natural law. And they have expressed this, what they have seen in sound form. The vibration is a sound. And so Veda is literally just the vibrations of these sounds, the vibration of these sounds. Now, the vibrations of these sounds have a structure because as long you have sounds go up and down, you stop, there is silence and then you start again, another word and a third word and a fourth word. These are just an indications of silence and sound, silence and sound. This is what creates structure, this is what creates structure. What is very interesting is that this structure is really the structure of natural law. And the Veda is 40 aspects of Veda. We have seen one aspect which is yoga, which is around here. And this yoga is the four, as we said, chapters and has its own divisions. But there are all of these aspects, Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda, Shiksha, Kalpa, Vyakara, Nirukchan, Jyotish, all of these different aspects that have different Sanskrit names, they are part of the Ved. So Marshi has organized this in a perfect chart like this, and a perfect science. And for each aspect of the Ved, there are two things. There is the function, what does it do? Like we said, yoga is unifying, that's its function. And what is its structure? How it's divided, literally how the books are divided, how many chapters are there. This is interesting because if you remember, I said it doesn't have to depend on interpretation. Because if it's an interpretation and a translation, you can say, okay, you have a commentary and you have your opinion and I have my opinion and it's a philosophy. But the structure is something very fixed. You can say how many fingers I have in my hand and there are five. You know, it doesn't have to be interpreted, it's not a philosophy, it's not a way of thinking, it's not a belief system. It's just five fingers in my hand. How many parts in your brain? There are four divisions in the brain. That's what they are. It's not subject to interpretation. And therefore it becomes reliable knowledge. So in the Veda it's the same. If you look at it from an interpretation level, from a commentary level, you would say it is, you know, open to philosophy and interpretation. But if you look at it from the structure perspective, it is fixed. Four chapters are four chapters, not five, not six, not, not two. And so many subdivisions, there are so many subdivisions. So that is where it becomes scientifically interesting. So we said yoga is the unifying value. And if you look at the human brain and see where the unifying value happens, which means 
when you perceive your environment from so many different perspectives, yet there is a unifying value that puts things together. For example, when you look at the flower, there are millions of bits of information that come to the eyes based on the angle of how the light strikes on the flower and reflects and comes to your retina and the frequency of the light. So you have some neurons that get excited, some neurons get inhibited. You have millions of bits of information on the retina. These get channeled to the brain, but they are separate, separate bits. And the brain, what does it do? It takes all of these bits, put them together, unifies them, and then says, okay, this is a flower. That's how you recognize a flower. That's the unifying value that happens in the brain. You look at a family, it's made out of many people, one you know, man and one woman, and they have children, and one is a doctor, one is a driver, one is a musician, whatever they are, they are very different, they look different. But you have a concept of unifying value, and that concept is called, in this case, family. They are a family. You have people in a nation, they are so different, even from different cultures, but you say they are American. That is the concept the brain is able to conceive of unifying differences. You look at the world, so many nations, but you say it's our world. We are a human race. We are humanity. It's our world. It's our galaxy. It's our universe. It's our reality. It's our cosmos. This ability to put together differences happens in the brain through the unifying value of the brain, which connects these different values and gives them a name or structures them as a structure. So the unifying part of the brain happens in what we call the association fibers that crisscross throughout the brain and put everything together. How this unifying value happens? It happens on the basis of four lobes of the brain. These four lobes of the brain correspond one-to-one -to, -one to the four chapters of yoga in their structure and in their function. This is a brain without the skull. We're looking at it from the side. And these are the different parts of the brain. Now, you see these don't have this name of chapter 2, chapter 3. It's usually called frontal lobe, occipital lobe, temporal lobe, and parietal lobe. But they correspond exactly to the four chapters of yoga. This is why, you know, we can call them chapter one of yoga, chapter two of yoga, chapter three of yoga, and chapter four of yoga. And within them are these divisions here on which I have written the Sanskrit sutras that actually correspond to what's happening in each of these parts of the brain. So you see that actually our brain is an exact replica of the book of yoga. So there is an architectural design which is available in the book of yoga and there is the building which is our brain that is completely in accordance with its architectural design. So that is how we see the correspondence between Veda and that Veda is, as the title of the lecture says, is the code that codes the brain, how the brain should be formed, it's based on, in this particular case, on yoga. It's not only yoga. I take this example because it's a simple example. But the research has shown that all the 40 aspects of Veda and Vedic literature, every one of them, like yoga, shiksha, kalpa, vyakaran, every one of them is actually present in our human physiology. To take another example, we say Nyaya. Nyaya is one of these branches and it is described in the Veda as being the lamp at the door. And when I asked Masi, what does this mean? He says, it's a lamp at the door, which means it lights the outside and it lights the inside. And the outside is what we call specific value, outer values, differentiated values. And the inside is the more holistic value, the togetherness value. There is a part in the brain that does exactly that. It's called the thalamus. It sits in the middle. It receives all the sensory information and sends them to the brain, which, as we said, unifies them. The thalamus, therefore, is like a lamp at the door. It sees the specific values, and it also sees the holistic value, which is inside the brain, the togetherness of 
all these differences. Now that is interesting, of course, that there is a part in our brain that has the same function as Nyaya. But what is most fascinating is that the structure of this part is exactly like the structure of Nyaya. So that you have five chapters in Nyaya and you have five divisions in the thalamus. In Nyaya you have 16 subdivisions, one by one are very well described, Pramana, Prameya, Samshaya, and they describe the functions of how the entire Nyaya is to function, what are the principles on which all the Nyaya functions. And it so happens there are exactly 16 nuclei, which means collections of neurons in the thalamus, and their functions correspond and their structure correspond one to one to the 16 values of Nyaya. So here we have a book. It's divided in five chapters. It has a certain function. And in the brain we have the same structure which has the same function and the same divisions and the same subdivisions to an amazing equal comparison that you can analyze and look at in a very scientific way. So our thalamus is an exact replica of the book of Nyaya. This way is all the 40 aspects of Veda and Vedic literature. And this is why it is the code of creation that has built our own human physiology and actually is the basic laws of nature that construct the entire universe. So Veda then, as knowledge goes, is the direct knowledge of natural law as it expresses itself in our human body and in the entire universe. These are some more details of different aspects of Veda, which also shows that even the structure of the planetary system is available in our human physiology and reflects it. Now, this is true, as I said, also when you look at the dynamics of what's happening, when you look at a story such as the Ramayana. You look at the Ramayana with all its characters and its happenings and its stories, and it's a big, huge thing. It's actually the story of our human physiology and how it works and how it grows and how it develops and how it reaches maturity and then how it reaches higher level of enlightenment and liberation and higher states of consciousness. That's what the Ramayana is about. That's the basic aspect of the Ramayana. It's not just a social story, which it is and has beautiful stories and beautiful teaching in it, but even more profound than that, it has the dynamics of how our body works. And so when we said this bizarre demon, for example, that has ten heads, whose name is Ravana, is actually present in our body. It's our cerebellum and it has ten lobes and ten divisions and it has within it different nuclei and collections of neurons which correspond exactly to the brothers of Ravana and the sister of Ravana and this and that. It's like you have a family and they have connections and you look at the structure and you find exactly those connections and those dynamic interactions that are happening in the Ramayana are happening within our body. So in the Ramayana there is Ram and there is the river Sarayu and Ayodhya and we have a place for different aspects. We have the ministers which are the different tracks of the nervous system. We have the informants who are the sensory system. We have Ram's bow and he was throughout the structure of the Ramayana he's always talked about how he was perfect in archery and that he would send the arrow and it would reach the target, hit the target and come back to the quiver of Ram. And this bow of Ram is our vertebral column and the arrows of Ram are our nerves, the nerve that go out of the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system and that's what allows us to achieve and hit the target of action. And then there are feedback loops that always inform us about the achievement of what we have done, or to what extent we achieved what we have done. This happens through our sensory system, but also through our feedback loops. So the arrow going out is the motor function, and the arrow coming back is that what 
goes back to tell us what has happened and how much we were successful in hitting our target. That's why we can adjust and now hit another target. That's how life goes about. So the bow and arrow of Ram are the vertebral column and the nerves and their feedback loops. Lakshmi is in the heart with its divisions. That's also where Sita is. And we can see also the different aspects of Mahalakshmi, Radha and Rama. And if we look deeply into all the different relationships, for example, of the mothers that correspond to the arterial system in our body, you find exactly one-to-one -one correlation in a family tree to our arterial tree. Somebody had looked at the Vedic literature and they took all the ladies in the Purana and in the Ramayana and in the Mahabharata and they connected them together into a family tree. Who's the mother of whom and how many daughters she got and this daughter how many other daughters she got. And so there is a, a women's family tree, a lady's family tree that has been done for the entire Vedic literature. It is exactly like the structure of our arterial system. The artery comes from the heart, it's called the aorta, and it starts dividing into different branches. Some branches go this way, that way, and then they subdivide. You go from this and divide and subdivide and you follow this, you find exactly the same structure of the family tree of the women and ladies and mothers in the whole Vedic literature. So there is an exact correlation between this knowledge. Where did it come from? It comes from intuition, from cognition. It doesn't come from experimentation. It's not like the Vedic rishis went into a dissection and they had microscopes and they checked things out to study the anatomy. It came from their awareness. So that's the subjective level of knowledge. How, did it, how is it possible that this happened? As we explained, they went back into the self and being in the self, they were able to cognize all the laws of nature and the dynamics of all the laws of nature and they were able to express them. So all what's happening in the Ramayana, for example, is really a relationships of what's happening in our body, in our anatomy, in our physiology. This way you have all the ladies are there, all the rulers are there, and there is a history and there is a relationship between ancestry and why it's, you know, Kashyap is the ancestor of Dasharat, Dasharat is the king who had Ram as his son. Then you see the phylogenetic evolution that the lower parts of the brain correspond to more ancient and the higher parts of the brain correspond to more novel structures that are seen in the Ramayana. The rishis are there and the whole relationships of the rishis is there. The whole story of about the monkeys, for example, there is stories about the monkeys and Hanuman. This is all related to the hormonal system in the body and related to the relationships. So, <clears throat> you know, the monkeys are the, actually the hormones. And when a monkey is said to climb and fly and all of that <clears throat> and go into the water like Hanuman, it is really because the hormones, they go into the plasma, they go into the body, into the fluids of the body, and they go everywhere and they spread everywhere. At one point, one of the great monkeys, it's called Hanuman, burns a whole city. And that is the metabolic processes that are created by the hormone, where you activate through hormonal systems, you activate the digestive system and you activate burning of things. And that's what it means. At another point, Hanuman becomes a messenger. He goes and meets Sita, gives her a message, and she gives him a ring to bring back to Ram. This is also a function of neurotransmitters and hormones and messengers. Actually, in the body, they go and sit on a receptor and they report, they bring actually message from one cell to another. Ultimately, everything actually that is found in the Ramayana in great detail, very fine details, is found in the human physiology. Not only as independent structures and functions, but as the very profound relationships between structures and functions. So that the study of 
Ramayan and human physiology is not just some, something there works fine, it has a name, it has a function, it has a structure. Another thing works here, it has a name and structure and they correspond to each other. But you see the dynamics of interaction between them is also exactly as the dynamics of interaction between different parts of the body. So the Ramayana is actually happening in every aspect of our physiology. We are a replica of Veda and the Vedic literature and therefore all the laws of nature that are available in Veda as far as Vedic structure and function is concerned are available in our physiology and therefore our finding is matter is consciousness, physiology is intelligence, and every one of us is really cosmic. We have totality of natural law within us, and that's why we are able to live life in perfection. What is needed is to go back to the self and be aligned with the laws of nature. And then spontaneously, we can act in accordance with the laws of nature. That's what wisdom is about. That's what being a sage or being a wise person is about. What it is about, the ability to know what is true, what is right, and to be able to spontaneously make the right decisions. This doesn't come only from education and information and culture on a surface level. It comes from how much we are within ourselves. Because we have all that is needed to be perfect. We have Ram, we have Vishnu, we have Shiva, we have Mahalakshmi, we have the whole power of total natural law already available in our own human physiology. And therefore all we need to do is awaken ourselves to our own self and then spontaneously we'll be able to make right decisions and create a life for ourselves and others that is fulfilling and have a society that lives in peace and harmony and, and imperfection. So that's the message of this knowledge of Vedic literature. It's the message of all traditions. As we said, man is created in the image of God. Find the kingdom of heaven within you. This is something we have heard. But now we understand that it is really there. All we need to do is go back to the self. And there is a technique for that. It's not just theoretical knowledge. This technique is a technique of transcendental meditation that has been proven and tried. And it brings us back to ourselves, brings us back home. When we go back to the real home within ourselves, we come out fresh and clear, and we are able to think and act in accordance with natural law. So life can be lived in bliss. Everyone is cosmic. So let us enjoy it and live it in perfection and live it for good for ourselves and our society. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.